January 9th, 1977. The Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. Some of you already know where this is going. Super Bowl XI, played between the Oakland Raiders and the Green, and the, not Green Bay, nope, Minnesota Vikings. Oh boy, this sermon's off to a great start already. All right. A game to that to many of you will live in infamy. Four, four Super Bowls in the 1970s. A game that dashed the hopes of so many, including those of someone I know who, as a boy, cried over his shrine of Fran Tarkenton and Carl Eller and other players and resolved to never let a football team hurt him that badly again. There are few things quite as painful as having one's hopes crushed. A favorite football team doesn't win the big game. A favorite office seeker doesn't win the election. Or a favorite office seeker does win the election and then doesn't do what you thought they would do. A child doesn't do as well in school as you might have hoped, or spouse doesn't change their ways. Maybe even people in the congregation don't always act in a caring, loving way. For this pastor, one moment that always sticks out to me is the moment I realized that my seminary colleagues were just as gossipy, just as self-serving, just as sinful as I was. And the early church experienced disappointment too. Some 40 years after Jesus' resurrection, they were facing a new grim reality. The Jerusalem temple, the center of the universe for Jews and for many Jewish Christians, had been destroyed by the Romans, along with the rest of the city. It's hard to overstate how devastating this was. It was the destruction of an entire identity. And Jesus had not yet returned some 40 years after his resurrection. He told his disciples he would. He'd said, this generation won't pass away before all these things take place. Yet most of the first generation of Christians had died. Of the original 12, perhaps only John of Zebedee was left. The others had been killed. Paul, who seems to have expected the Lord's return in his lifetime, had been executed in Rome. Little struggling churches were scattered throughout the Mediterranean, facing challenges both internal and external. It was a tough time. But out of these traumas, Mark's gospel was written, preserving the story of Jesus for generations. But what was interesting wasn't that Mark downplayed the urgency of Jesus' message. Mark didn't downplay the immediacy there in, in the story of Jesus and of his return. He did the opposite. He preserved Jesus' words, urging the church to be watchful and alert for his coming. And yet, he also preserved Jesus' warnings against messianic fervor against cultish behavior, against setting one's hopes on a particular day or in a person other than Jesus for his return. 
Our contemporary age seems to be one of great disappointment. Disappointment in the government, disappointment in the next generation or the one prior, depending on which generation you are in, or both. Disappointment in the whole American dream. And the reactions to this disappointment, we see that play out. Fewer Americans engage with their wider community than a generation ago, preferring to be siloed in their own entertainment and news preferences. Many people find ways to drug, to not drug, to numb themselves, to numb themselves. It doesn't have to be with, with actual substances. It can be with something like this. This is just as addicting. And many young people despair of a better future, or of any kind of future at all. And amid our disappointments and our despairing, Jesus speaks to us as he spoke to his disciples long ago. The context is Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem. The disciples, being the country mice they are, are amazed by the gigantic, gorgeous temple around them. Reminds me of when I first came to, went to Chicago or to New York and like this, looking up at the big buildings. They get, they get Jesus' attention. Look at what great buildings and what large stones. Jesus is not impressed. Do you see these buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Well, that's a church growth strategy for you. When the disciples ask him when this will happen, he gives them the longest speech in Mark's gospel. And the gist of the speech is this. Bad things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. There will be wars. There will be false messiahs. There will be betrayal. It's going to be scary. But be watchful. Be faithful. Be patient. Wait for the Lord. The Lord will return and is and has returned. Indeed. Have your hope in the right place. Our ultimate hope as people called to a shalom way of life is in Jesus Christ alone, not in anyone else. Not our ultimate hope. Not in a politician, not in our families, not even in our beloved congregation. All these are human beings, prone to failure, prone to sin. That doesn't mean we despair of each other, that we write each other off, but we remember that we're not God. The fact that we're made in God's image does not translate to divine behavior. Sometimes we expect people in the church to always have it together. That's not always true. We often go wrong when we expect people to act in a semi-divine way. We sin, we hurt each other, and we fail, just like Jesus' disciples failed. 
time and time again. But Jesus never fails. Even though the disciples constantly fell short, Jesus never failed them. We're in the year of Mark's gospel, so you'll hear time and time again about the disciples' failures, about their thick-headedness, about their arguments over who was the greatest, their wrong-headed notions of power. It might have seemed tempting to Jesus to try to start over, to get a new group of people who would, you know, get it, get what he was trying to say. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't invest his disciples with semi-divine attributes, with virtues that they didn't have, with wisdom that they didn't have. He knew who they were. And he remained faithful to them, even to death. Jesus did not fail them. And Jesus does not fail us. Jesus is faithful to us. Every week, Jesus returns. Here, in word and sacrament, in you and me, Jesus returns. Jesus sets a table here for us where he is fully present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. In this time, between Jesus' resurrection and his return in glory, he returns time and time again at tables all over the world like this one, feeding us, strengthening us, forgiving us. Why? So we can live as his shalom people in the meantime, with our hopes in the right place. So we can live resiliently, able to see people in ourselves for whom for who we are sinners for whom christ died sinners on the path to wholeness loved infinitely by our lord not whole yet but on our way so we can do life together, not with unfounded hopes and expectations, but in a new hope and expectation. We may fail. We're sinful human beings after all, but Jesus does not. Thanks be to God. Amen.